Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and columnist who has over a million listeners around the world. His podcast and YouTube show draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum. And welcome to The Common Bridge. This is the second part and final part of the Robert Greenfield interviews. Rich sat down with Robert Greenfield, who's been on his show a couple of times, but this time he came from Perth, Australia to Rich's studio in Ann Arbor for this interview that really ranges from everything from election law to COVID to U.S. politics and world politics. So we join Richard and Robert Greenfield in conversation about U.S. labor. We learned that at that very special time as baby boomers, that a person could go to work, uh, could have a middle-class standard of living, uh, perhaps with a high school education or maybe some technical training. They got into skilled trades Mm -hmm. and have a home and send their kids to college, uh, maybe have a cottage up north or a boat. Mm -hmm. And those labor benefits did not come from the largesse of employers, but they were hard fought. So, Robert, any thoughts about Labor Day and where we stand with labor well, as a nation today. Okay. Well, as you put it, uh, they were very hard fought. Um, earlier, Brian uh, mentioned one of his documentaries that talks about this uh, with the strike, strike breaking, all those things, uh, and then the federal government providing uh, some leadership in that area. I remember from growing up uh, that Labor Day was a big deal. It was always a big parade, especially mm-hmm. if it was a In Detroit, we always had the presidential candidates if it was a presidential uh, year. Moving forward, uh, labor uh, has changed dramatically. I don't think it uh, serves us uh, a lot to recount, you know, the demise of uh, the UAW of 2.5 million members now down to 250,000. I think, though, it's important to note the fact that private uh, uh, union representation is at its lowest point since the 1930s. Uh, The obvious controversy is over public union uh, in the labor market, which means that the public unions are not really beholding to the the marketplace. So they don't, when they're negotiating contracts, this is my my problem with it, even though I'm on the left, is that it's kind of like they're they're negotiating from a peer, uh, not a marketplace, but from a, well, you know, we are doing this essential function so that we need to get uh, paid this. And it's not just teachers. It's also parks and recs and everybody else that's in that. And as you know, uh, Chicago, other places, they have unsustainable labor costs right now, uh, pension costs. So labor right now is at an inflection point from uh, a union side that's completely, even though Joe Biden talks the talk here, I don't know if he can walk the talk because I don't know how to change that uh, per se. I do think, though, from a labor point of view, that uh, it actually was going in the right direction a bit with Trump. Uh, Unfortunately, Trump never gives anything a boost. (laughs) He gave a tax cut, which was that worked a bit, right? First time, maybe a little trickle down worked in a while. But what he didn't do is he didn't provide like the training. He didn't provide the next generation stuff. So the only way that I look at labor on this Labor Day is what are we going to do uh, for the next generation so that we are globally competitive? Going back to your China thing. 
We are not globally competitive right now. We are not really uh, getting the hearts and minds uh, of the young to to move into disciplines that are going to make us globally competitive and to give them kind of a lifelong uh, career aspect. So I don't look at labor any longer as a union thing, really, or as a, a private sector thing. I look at it as an America thing. What are we going to actually do to bring our labor up? Because it's not a question of money. It's not a question of, well, we got to pay people $7.25 or we're, you know, we're going to go out of business. Okay, go out of business. You know, don't need to be around if you got to pay people $7.25 an hour because we're giving them food stamps. We're giving them other benefits to help your business stay open. And that's not really what we should be doing. What we need to be doing is having, in my view, uh, and I, this is where I agree with Biden, a comprehensive approach. Unfortunately, so far with the Democrats, we don't have people who talk about comprehensive approach. We have people talk about benefits. And the benefits culture is not going to grow our economy or our labor. Let me react a little bit of that. So I, I kind of back up to the basic social contract. You commit your time, energy, talents, training, and skill to the economy, your labor, and you get in return for that, you get spending power for a middle-class standard of living. And I know that when I was growing up that there were fathers of friends that were raising a family as car salesmen, raising mm-hmm. a family as a short order cook raising a family clerking and that the tax burdens and the state of the economy and the cost of living allowed them to do that. And I think that we've shattered that social contract. And part of it is that our, our government regulations have come in and said, look, we want to make sure everybody gets something. So we're going to say, if you're a full-time employee, you have to give them this, you have to give them that. And business looked at that and said, hmm, what are the number of ways I cannot call this a full-time employee? And we have to look at what does the social contract say today? So if we're going to have more gig workers, does it make any sense at all to say, oh, you get your health care from your employer? It, It makes zero sense to do that. You get your retirement from your employer. Well, Again, it kind of makes zero sense to do that. We, we need to think about a level of social benefits, health care, retirement, long-term care as being predominantly government supplied or independent market. I mean, if I'm a 20-something today, I don't want Social Security. I want my own account that I can put money aside and invest, and that'll be there when, when I cannot work any longer. So I think we need to get to the back to what the social contract should be. And then we need to give people opportunities for education to expand their marketable skills. So if you're not happy with the level that you might have in a more manual occupation, landscaping, cleaning, and the like, but you can learn math skills to be in technology, to be in environmental sciences, something that might pay a little bit more, you should have that chance to do that. That's what we need to get back to and understanding it's not going to be big companies and huge payrolls running through. I think you're uh, spot on about the social contract. Uh, If you look globally, by the way, globally, if you are in um, uh, Australia, Australia actually has the same system as we have here. It's called superannuation instead of 401k. And basically, the government's not going to give you uh, retirement. They don't have a social security. They have a means-based pension if you run out of money in your 70s, okay? Then you can flip over to that. But pretty much, you got to plan 
you know, on a 401k uh, approach. That is globally happening. So unlike Andrew Yang, who says, I'm going to give everybody $1,000 a month because we can afford it, which we cannot, okay, um, most people are going the opposite way. It's a social contract. Same thing with medical. Medical, as you know, started here because of the post-World War II, couldn't give a raise. So, right. that, you know, we started it in this town, you know, in Detroit. Okay, fine. But are those days passed? I'll tell you the way that they do it in most countries. And almost every country has this. It's called a private insurance option. If you end up uh, taking that private insurance option, you put you don't have to put in your 2% Medicare levy. Okay, mm-hmm. so that uh, gets you out of that, obviates you from that system. But what it does do, it allows you, if you've got a bad back, you can get this. You can customize your private insurance at a very small cost, but your primary stuff like surgeries, anything like that, and you don't wait in a queue. There is a little queue, but it's not like, you know, you got to wait six months for a hip operation. It may wait 30, 45 days kind of thing. So what you're talking about here, the social contract, actually is the, the basis for uh, sound economic uh, growth. And, and this is my big pet peeve, which I think I've said to you before, I think we need to get everybody that the University of Michigan to Ford Motor Company to Amazon out of the healthcare business. Amen. Because they're, that's not their business. And when you put in a billion, two billion, three billion and X layers of people, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, which is to, you know, build your business, not figure out how to get around the system or provide. And then when you mentioned your last one, I love what you said about part-time, full-time. You can't win this system playing the, well, you're part-time, so I'm not going to give you that. I can save some money. That's a non-competitive kind of approach. And I completely disagree with people being used to in order to gain a competitive advantage by not providing social contract. Right. And, and look, you think some, one of the things we did at the uh, Obamacare, the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act, was if you're a full-time employee, you, right, 30 hours a week, guess what? A lot of people got their hours cut to 27 to 29. What did they need to do? Go out and get a second 27-hour job. Yeah. And we didn't solve the problem. But for, and I've talked about it a lot on the show, so just... Quickly, I would say that um, we need to take all the tax-supported Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE, maybe the VA. Every citizen gets a level of care. It's paid for on a sliding scale right off the 1040. If they let there be a secondary market for people that want access and choice and want to pay for it themselves, they can challenge insurance companies to build a a product. But if your employer gives it to you, it's taxable income because that's all it is. And uh, so you got to decouple the employment from that. I'd also allow Medicare Part D, which is a great program for drugs. Let everybody get on it right away. That's that. I think the problem solved at that point. Then can I give you a fist bump on that? Yeah. One? <laughs> yeah. Then, then, then look, if, if somebody is working as a, a clerk, a short order cook, doing janitorial services, whatever, they can go to the doctor when they need to. They can get a prescription when they need to. If they become injured and they need a surgery, they can get it, and 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 on the provider side, the assurance that something's coming uh, means they can balance how many ORs they're going to build and how many clinics they're going to put out and how many doctors are going to employ. The way we do it today—that's exactly what they do in Australia, by the way. Is that yeah, exactly? And Australia's also got, if my my understanding, the the National Health Service in Australia that you're eligible to join it when you're 19. Don't yes. have to. 
But if you don't start paying in and you try to later on, there's a big catch up premium. You have yeah. to pay a lot of money. Yeah. If you, right. That's how Medicare Part D is. Yeah, so for exactly. anybody in our audience that becomes Medicare eligible, sign up for Part D, even if you don't take any drugs, because if you wait and you have to get it later, it's going to really cost you. So, all right, well, we've just solved health care. But our political system isn't. We've solved labor and health care in the space of 15 minutes. But this, but this comes to the point, Rich. Um, Again, I don't want to say as business guys, but I'm a business guy. You're a business guy, right? You know that you need to keep everything in balance in order to have a successful business. And if you can take as many things out of that equation so that you can focus on what your business is, you have a way better chance of winning. If you're sitting here focusing on, you know, how do I gain the system to keep guys' hours low or whatever else, I'm, it's very difficult to win. However, if everybody's gaming the system... Well, then it becomes something of pressuring those wages down, pressuring those hours down. Let's take your, your clerk example. In 1973, uh, before I went into the Peace Corps, I was on a rate. Well, my brother uh, worked at a place called Great Scott. He made $25,000 that year in 1973 as a retail clerk. Yep. And that was good. That's less than grand right now. Yeah, exactly. He ran the numbers up overtime this time, that time, 25 cent premium, anything like that. He didn't have to worry about it, okay? Because that's the way that that people were running their business at that time. My personal feeling, uh, Joe Biden can't get out of it, but I don't think that there is a way you may be smarter than me of fixing uh, an insurance program that is a national insurance program. I think it's very difficult to, to do that. I think that the Medicare for All option or getting more people into those three programs, A, B, and D, that is probably the only way that we can save, uh, you know, ourselves from some kind of chaotic. Let, let, me, let me say this about that. So first of all, the Medicare for all bill that Bernie Sanders proposed, which I did read, is horrible. It basically makes the Secretary of Health and Human Services the czar of every spend of Medicare and Medicaid, uh, you know, for, for the entire country. Every healthcare spend, period. And it was it'd be illegal to offer a service that was also covered there. So really, you have a health. I didn't mean that Medicare for all in the Bernie Sanders. I understand what you're saying. I, I, I mean I'm, expanding Medicare. Right, exactly. And let people buy in at an earlier age. Exactly. All right. It's, 60. But that, the, the thing that, that I think would, would, if you could do one thing, that the Congress could do tomorrow, take away the tax-favored treatment of employer-based healthcare, it just you know what? If you want to give a healthcare benefit, it's going to show up on your W two. That is the single thing we could do that would set into motion everything else that could be fixed. And I know I had thousands of employees working mm. really hard at getting good healthcare for them, and it was a an incredibly difficult job because the insurance companies would bid the work low to get it, hoping that we would renew. And then when it would come up in a year, they'd want to tack on a premium that made it unaffordable. So we had to go back into the market and buy insurance again. So then you have people that are halfway through a course of treatment. And now we've changed from, you know, Aetna to Cigna to something else. And we have employees all across the country to further complicate things. So as an employer, 
as much effort and time as we put into it, we couldn't meet the needs of everyone because we had to meet the needs of the vast majority. And so I, I, I like the idea of getting employers out of it, period. It's no fun. And, and I think you make a great case that it's not what we were in business to do. And the more that you spend, the more time you spend in that area, my personal feeling is the less time you are spending it on your real business. And I don't, I don't think that works. And I go back because I'm an international guy, right? That makes us globally uncompetitive. And if that, you look at, read, read Nate Kaufman been on my show two or three times now, most recently collecting data on the profitability of insurance companies, which is eye-opening to say the least, that that's who's killing it right now. And yet we're in the middle of a pandemic and and the providers themselves are under strain. Yeah. I mean, you've looked at this a lot, but to me, um, from what I've read, uh, up to one third of the U.S. healthcare costs could go away with better uh, management, better systems. That's what I've read, whether it's hospitals that are, you know, doing things. But insurance is, yeah, is a big is a big area. Yeah. Well, we're doing it very wrong. Um, at this point. But again, it's a very, very important part of that labor uh, social contract. And that I know as an employer and as a citizen, as a human being, I want people to be able to live in dignity. To have, I want them to be able to have, you know, ample food and education and a forward path for their children and, you know, safe neighborhoods and clean water and, and those kind of things. And that's are things that I think are not right or not left that you know, we want those things. Yet you'll find one political side saying, well, these people want all children to die in the streets. Well, I don't think they want that. But and then people want to have an argument about that. And, and I don't know how we change the dialogue in the country to get people to deal with reality. But let me shift gears. Just let me ask you this. You've been spending time in Europe. And how if you look in your forward thinker, how does the world look at the United States today? Are we that beacon or are we are they is Europe moving away from us? How do our Western Hemisphere neighbors start viewing the European countries, not necessarily European Union? Um, OK, two different questions there. So uh, how does people look at us? I answer this question all the time on core. It comes up in lots of uh, different ways. Um there's a vocal minority that's going to blame the United States for everything. And uh, they are, they push their agenda. Uh, a lot of them are China propagandist kind of people. A lot of them are just people who resent the fact that the U S is successful and they will push the agenda that the U S is highly militaristic, that it's, you know, overburdened by militarism uh, that they've started a lot of wars, okay, that kind of thing. Interestingly, in the negative uh, sphere, nobody ever talks about the U.S., uh, or very rarely anymore, about the U.S. being, you know, economically the powerhouse. Mm -hmm. They do talk about the U.S. Uh, media and uh, social media guys, the Facebooks, trying to control them because they feel like they are uh, out of control and they get to do whatever they want, and they don't pay taxes, right? So a lot of people talk about that um, kind of thing. But if you look at the view at the United States, I am sorry to say that uh, Donald Trump, unfortunately, the primary media outside the U.S. is center left, okay? It's not far left, and it's there is the Rupert Murdoch, as you know, he's kind of the counterpoint 
everywhere. But basically, they looked at Trump as somebody who was angry, who represented an America that they did not understand, mm -hmm. that it's an America that they could not work with very well. And they really were kind of left out, hung out to dry. All right, so that's passed now. So as you know, America's back. That's, that's the Biden thing. For the ma large majority of people, whether they were Trump supporters or, you know, hopeful, nobody was a Hillary supporter, by the way. You cannot find anybody internationally that I've ever met that said, wow, I loved Hillary Clinton. There are some women who said, wow, I wish she was elected. But you can't find people who like her policy because she was a, a bit of a hawk herself. So the people, though, look at Biden and they see him as kind of a, a grandfatherly figure. They look at him as a guy that's not that's trying not to make any more wars. They do look at him as being uh, indecisive. They do. Nobody was happy the way that uh, Afghanistan ended at all. They don't care about whether Trump said this or Biden said that. Nobody wanted to see people on the tarmac. And people are, right now, I don't want to say they're concerned, but they're saying, What's next? That first round of Biden was good. Now we had a stumble on Afghanistan. Is America going to, what is America going to do? So globally, right now, people are actually sitting there saying, okay, guys, we've heard this first chapter's done. Biden's supposed to be the Mr. International guy, but what's really going to happen here? We haven't seen any change in the Trump policy in China. We haven't seen any change in any of these places. We got some talk about trade treaties and things like that but nothing really concrete. So I think the biggest, uh, if you are an American looking out at the world, is you don't want to see is, is any more drift. What you want to see is a, what is America about? And if you can't just stand up and say it's about values, okay? So Trump, uh, Biden talked about, we're going to put shots in arms. Okay, good. We're putting some of that out there. Biden talked about he was going to do the global new deal, you know, kind of thing. Sounds good. Where's the money? You know, kind of thing. So I think Biden's got some competent people behind him, but how does that translate uh, Blinken and the rest of these guys who are more career guys and they're not really businessy type guys? How's that really going to translate uh, for the U.S.? But in closing, I can say this. Biden has done a pretty good job of neutralizing both China and Russia. The question next comes is what's the second act? Yeah, that's that's a great insight, and you know, you mentioned Afghanistan, and my understanding is that some of our European neighbors, mm -hmm. our our European allies, are furious because of the way the withdrawal was handled, and that it stranded some of their people. I believe that the Biden administration is hoping that this is just not brought up again. Mm -hmm. But I, I did have a chance to talk to some people that uh, have been in theater there, and mm -hmm. I'm trying to get one or more of them to come on my show. They're very nervous about doing that. And but let me tell you what I've learned is there's these things called OERs, Operational Effectiveness Reports. So it starts at the first level of officership and that they have to write that oh, this lieutenant says, oh, I achieved this with this population and so forth. And they actually have writers that are called happiness reports. Well, then they write, and then it goes up the line, and they write a, like a, a happiness report, and all the way up the line. And I actually asked two different sources this question. I said, well, do the generals have the happiness reports? Oh, yeah. I go, well, could they be relaying that to the president? Oh, yes. So the, the conclusion I'm starting to reach is that 
the president was making decisions based on a lack of intel because of the way that the bureaucracy was working. But all have told me that there were other ways of getting the intel. And they're all very distressed that our human intel on the ground in Afghanistan that been lost. And not only has it been lost, but part of what our military was doing was getting biometrics, you know, fingerprints, retina scans on people that were helping us. And that now those that, that the Taliban have that. And there were reports coming out that they're, they're using that to track down people and, and kill them. As of today, one congressman saying that we have six airplanes sitting in Afghanistan that the, the Taliban won't let leave. I'm not trying to go through here chapter and verse because I think Leon Panetta, you know, Democrat, Mike Pompeo, architect of the withdrawal plan, and some other military people universally say it was not handled the way it should have been handled. And, and incredulous that the president could come on and say, yeah, we, we thought this might happen. God, he's got to <clears throat> own this thing. And, 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 uh, and to the extent that you know about this, because I'm completely ignorant, that supposedly there's a lot of lithium there that that the yeah, Chinese are going to mine. But yeah. uh, here's my view: um, the problem with the 20 year. I don't disagree with you. Certainly, we have a real PR problem too. But generally speaking, uh, it was predictable that that was going to happen. That happened. The problem was is that nobody predicted that a 300,000 man and woman army would disappear overnight. That's almost impossible to, to predict. That being said, nobody ever, uh, Ashraf Ghani, who would ever believe that clown, you know, and they all sat there and they had him, and he was clearly a puppet, okay? Mm-hmm. And he ran out of there as fast as, as he could. So I think that both Trump and Biden um, are victims of their own hubris, which is that somehow things are going to go at least reasonably well instead of taking the worst case uh, scenario. I, you know, survive in business. I don't know about you. I always take the worst case scenario. Absolutely. What is, if somebody says next month it's going to, growth's going to be X, I'm like X minus, Mm -hmm. okay? And if it hits X, I'm like, okay, happy. If it's minus, I live with it. I know how to live with it. I don't think that neither Trump nor Biden dealt with this thing, understanding that what what is the worst case scenario? So you can say it's Intel, you can say whatever you want to. But I moving forward and answering your question, Europeans were very unhappy. If you've got the NATO guys who are always like the, you know, Namby Pambies, if they're unhappy, well then that's not a very good thing. Okay. Um, the second thing is is that the US is no longer going to be the world cop. Now you can say that but there's a strong case that could have been made, and I, I would have made it, that some limited presence in Afghanistan holds China back, holds Russia and all the stands back, that as long as nobody was getting killed, okay, or it was very low, uh, maybe we were not building roads. Maybe we were doing some, you know, basic stuff for women and children. Okay, but was that a sustainable thing? The answer was yes. I don't think anybody would have told you that. It's not the military guys saying we got to blow it up to 100,000 people. The problem of both Trump and Biden is they threw the political solution onto something that was far more complex, and neither of them did the right thing, and we're, we're, we're paying for it. Now, our biggest issue is not that we're not going to be the global cop, is that we don't have that that spot there. Who, who, who could, who, yeah, right. We've given up that. 
that strategic geography there yes. and now the, the flights that are coming in. But I can see that the reports from the generals coming to the president's desk saying, hey, we've got all these reports, 300,000 person armed. All right. I would think if I'm the president of the United States and with this outcome, I'd have been firing people. Right. So whoever gave me the bad intel has got to go. And I've been saying for 20 years, when, they, when we first went in, when the 10th Mountain first went in, we should have taken the Taliban out, which we did, destroyed the training camps and said, if we see any more training camps, we're coming back. But in the history of the world, no foreign power has been able to hold that. No. And, you know, we should have, the other people I'm talking to are saying we should have come out in the winter. All right. Because to, they, to the time of year. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's folks that are saying, well, uh, oh, this is going to be a new Taliban. So I said, okay, let me think about this. You're a 24-year-old tribal fighter, okay, part of the Taliban or ISIS-K or some other group. You've been living in a cave. You've been trained to fight. You're one tough guy. And you're being told that when we overthrow the Americans, you're going to be able to go in and pick any woman. That's going to be your wife. Pick a couple of them, okay? And you can exact revenge on the people that fought you. And now you're going to come out and you tell me, oh, you know what we told you about the wife and about the revenge? Never mind. It's like, it's well, not going to happen. If you, if you look at, uh, I spent a lot of time in developing countries. And if you look at uh, the villages, the caves, all those things, and you look at Kabul, what did you see in Kabul? People in beautiful clothes. You saw them in nice dress, nice, I mean, the guys were in like nice robes and all these kinds of uh, things. There's brand new cars everywhere. Roads work, everything worked. Why was that working? It was working because the U.S. was pumping money in there. Even Biden said, we paid the salaries, we paid this, we paid that. So, yeah, if I'm a Taliban fighter coming in there, I'm seeing a bunch of, you know, kind of weak people that have not been following the faith, and I'm going to assert my control. So it's, uh, again, naivete or lying, if you want to say. Everybody knows that that's not going to happen. Everybody knows, okay, you can maybe not be as excessive as in the past because they want, Taliban now feels that they are a little bit better global players. They got China. Don't forget, by the way, we didn't mention this. I've written about this extensively. What's China going to do? They're going to build a pipeline from Iran straight across to that narrow opening, which is about 60 kilometers across, right into the Uyghurs, okay, and Xinjiang. And who's going to guard that pipeline? The Taliban. Because what are they good at? Guarding pipelines and having guns. So that's what's going to happen. What this has done is guaranteed Iran is going to have a pipeline directly to China. Because China's not going to go off the oil. They need to get off the oil. You know, they, they need oil. So China, by the way, we don't mention this, but this is an important thing. There is something called the Belt and Road Initiative. Right. We mentioned it with Aaron Busky. Bottom line is that China is looking for resources. They don't care about human rights or anything like that. They give a damn about anything. If they get their oil that way, they might not have to get it from Russia. They're just looking for places. If they get their lithium from Afghanistan, they don't have to do something somewhere else. To them, it's all about making China the global super, the global superpower, not share it, the global superpower. So when people talk, use big words about existential threat and things like that, those are nice words. But the reality is, look at China as a 5,000-year-old civilization. 
They are not the USSR, which was a crazy thing of amalgamation of mm -hmm. different cultures after, you know, World War I kind of thing. This is a 5,000-year-old culture that is going out. They, now they got Xinjiang, they got Tibet, they got Hong Kong back. You know, they're going to put pressure and eventually get Taiwan back. There will be some kind of deal made. But their goal is to be the global hegemonist where they we are all vassal states. And at the end of the day, uh, the real question for me on any of these kind of global policies are anything that slows down China is a good thing. The way we pulled out of Afghanistan was a bad thing. Absolutely. And then when we start thinking about everything we've talked about today about Europe, we only touched briefly on the southern border, talked about Asia and a lot about China. Where do we go forward as a nation? And we have to be the United States of America. And that does not mean groupthink. That does not mean we're going to shout down people. That does not mean that someone wants to practice being a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Christian uh, uh, of the Jewish faith. They should have that opportunity to do that. Our Constitution and our Bill of Rights are wonderful documents. And I've challenged people, say, if you were going to design a country from scratch, how would you go about doing it? And I think most times people come around to what we've got. We need to understand that our generation and the generation of our children and grandchildren have to work the Constitution and be competitive just as past generations work. That's where we need to come together. And it doesn't serve any purpose to say, my team led by this person, you know, whether you're red or blue or Democrat or Republican or what have you, we're just better than those other guys are so bad. But we've become really, really good at being critical of the other. If it wasn't so damaging, it would be comical. But we're living in an America today where you can make somebody believe the most absurd, worst thing about the other just because they're primed to do it. That, to me, is what we need to stop. Does it make sense? It's kind of aged, but we now have a woman that's part of the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department who went to the mat that Justice Smollett was not getting justice and that it was being mistreated by the Chicago Police Department. We've just had this whole thing about the horse deworm, which turned out to be a non-story. And then now we've got uh, this like, oh, this big threat about critical race theory. And I'm still trying. I'm still looking for it. And we have we have some good good shows coming up on that. I, I would say this, that we at, at the end of the day, just to kind of wrap it up from from my side, uh, my view is uh, the same as yours. Um, but I personally am decided now that Trump is gone. Right. And we're in this kind of murky period with uh, Biden. Uh, I'm not thinking about the extremes anymore. I don't read the crazy stories. Right. Um, I do get concerned about something like Texas with the abortion law. I think in the turning people into vigilante kind of situation, <laughs> that is that's something that concerns. That's me. crazy even for Texas. Yeah, <laughs> that's Texas. crazy even for Texas. And, you know, you can be as creative as you want to stop abortion. But that was that's not the way uh, to, to go. Anyway, I get concerned about something like that. But the bottom line for me is I think that as all of us and uh, this is my message and thank you for letting me be on is that we need to talk about what are the things, again, that you talk about all the time that bring us together. These are very specific things. And one of the things, some of the things are, we need to understand our position in the global world. That's my thing, which is we need to understand that China is very serious about not about dominating the world. 
Okay, we need to understand that Europe is kind of rudderless at the moment and that we need to provide leadership for them. We need to understand that the UK is isolated. Okay, so we need to support that. We need to understand that Australia has been holding the fort down at the bottom and Australia hasn't even got all their vaccinations yet. We need to think about our friends. We need to think about what is our position among our friends and support our friends. If we don't support our friends, we cannot win the battle against China or even against Russia, which, by the way, most people call a failed petro state. Okay, so they're not the big, uh, you know, uh, you know, threat. The real threat is is China. Maybe if we have a national agenda around that, which is what Biden talked about, but kind of lost the plot on, which is, you know, not going to the moon like Kennedy, but, you know, redeveloping ourselves, reinvigorating ourselves you know, as a country, and to stop talking about critical race theory, stop talking about, you know, who got tenure, you know, uh, by the way, I'm going to say this to the camera, I think y'all know that the 1619 project, uh, you know, who the lady that's in, you know, charge of that, she's half Czech, from Czechoslovakia, oh, right. yeah, she's grew up in Iowa, she's half Czech, and her father was is African American, so she chose to uh, identify herself as uh, as black, as African-American. But she grew up in a white community. This is the same thing as a Barack Obama. If you don't want to say you're biracial, if you're going to do that, I'm identifying as this. Well, what you end up doing is you're automatically creating, you know, a division. If you are half white and half black, why are you not saying you are biracial? Why are you not saying you are bicultural? You sat here today and told me you're bicultural, okay? I am bicultural from my side. So why are we talking all only about one sliver so that we can, what, pound the other side? We don't win with that. Well, look, I think that's a powerful closing message because when you look at the census data, the largest growth was people that identified as multiracial. And that, to me, we are a human race that we come together. My beloved wife of 43 years is classified as a, a racial minority, which makes our kids, you know, several of whom looked the part of that. <laughs> but it's, it's all about hearts and minds. And the things that we have universal support for in the country today is, can we have a reliable electric grid, please? Is the bridge we're going to drive over going to support me? Can my child afford to go to college? What kind of job can they get with that college degree. And I think very powerful to your point, and I'll end on a point of, of uh, strong agreement with you. If we unite around those fundamental things, there's no stop in the United States of America. Exactly. Both oceans, more arable land, that individualism that you've talked about that leads to creativity, the heart that's been demonstrated for the entire time the country has been in existence. We need to move beyond the shallow narrative of us versus them. Perfectly said. And come together on the common bridge. Robert, a pleasure to have you with me today. Wonderful to see you too, Richard. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Common Bridge. Remember to rate us, review us, and comment about what you heard today and recommend us to your friends. Visit us at richardhelpy.com and sign up for special promotions. This broadcast was produced by Stunt3 Media and is available on YouTube and all podcast directories. All rights are reserved by Richard Helby.